Welcome to It Starts Within, a podcast from Platinum Performance, where we'll dive into the health challenges faced by veterinarians and horse owners alike. Join us for inspiring stories about the latest advancements in equine care, treatments, and comebacks. You'll hear interviews with elite competitors, innovative researchers, and the veterinarians that devote their lives to horses and the humans that love them. At Platinum Performance, we know the power of nutrition starts within. Hello, and welcome to everyone joining us. I am Jesse Bengoa with Platinum Performance, and I am so happy to be hosting today with an opportunity to talk with and learn from two of the foremost experts on today's topic, which is one that so many riders have had to go toe-to-toe with at some point in their careers, particularly if they ride in timed events. So today we're diving into exercise-induced pulmonary hemorrhage, also known as EIPH, or to those of us in more casual terms, we're talking bleeders. So let me introduce the two men joining me here today, both of whom are responsible for some of the most important work done in recent years on EIPH. First up, Dr. Warwick Bailey. Hi, and welcome, Dr. Bailey. Good night, Jesse. Uh, Dr. Bailey, as you as you may notice through our conversation, is actually a native of Melbourne, Australia, and a 30-year veteran and former dean of Washington State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Bailey is also a past president of the World Equine Veterinary Association and a highly respected author and researcher in the area of equine exercise science and exercise-associated diseases of the respiratory system specifically. And also joining us today is Dr. David Poole of Kansas State University's Department of Kinesiology. Hello, Dr. Poole. Hello there. He's repping the university well on his background today. Dr. Poole is a university distinguished professor and the director of the Cardiorespiratory Exercise Lab. And his research interests center on cardiorespiratory disease, respiration, microcirculation, and the list goes on and on. And Dr. Poole's work is internationally recognized with over 170 peer-reviewed papers and numerous book chapters published to his name. So we're so happy to have you both here. And gentlemen, let's jump right in. EIPH, there are so many nuances surrounding this condition And that word seems to be an important distinction. It's a condition, not a disease. And that simple fact, actually, it seems like it makes it a little tough to treat. Uh, This is not black or white. Uh, There seems to be some serious gray area happening with EIPH. And it's being constantly chipped away at by veterinarians and researchers such as yourselves. So Dr. Poole in the hot seat to kick us off. I was, I wanted to ask you if you would really paint a picture for us of what's happening within the horse when we hear the term bleeder. And I remember this picture that you painted so well in a 2016 paper uh, of which you were a co-author and it's titled exercise induced pulmonary hemorrhage. Where are we now? And it really set the stage so well. Can you walk us through that here? If you would. Yes, absolutely. So exercise induced pulmonary hemorrhage, EIPH is when the blood gas barrier is ruptured in the um, equine lung. So if you envisage a a capillary in the lung blown up here, this thing is really about 10 microns across about a 10th of the width of a human hair or so. So the capillaries are very small, red blood cells go through sometimes single file, sometimes two or three at a time, Um, but they're very, very small vessels. That's where oxygen exchange and CO2 exchange occur in the lung. The equine lung has a prodigious surface area, 
Um, it's uh, probably 2,800 square meters or so. So it's got this massive surface area and hundreds and hundreds of millions, maybe billions of these capillaries. They're very thin walled. So in the equine, they're about, um, the wall is about a half a micron. So one two hundredth of the thickness of a human hair. And during exercise, because we bred horses for at least six millennia for speed, we've bred in these enormous hearts. So a horse heart might be in the extreme for a horse like there is no other horse like Secretariat, but Secretariat had a, a heart about 20 or so, 22 pounds in weight, just enormous, like a, like a basketball. And developing that big heart, the chest on a horse couldn't get that much bigger. It couldn't increase its lung size in comparison to or in proportion to its heart size. So now we have a horse that has a huge heart, a massive cardiac output, um, and it has to pump all that blood through the lung um, where the lung is now small for the heart size. So it, it raises the pressure and the pressure in those pulmonary capillaries, uh, according to our closest estimates, um, during exercise in a horse is very, very close to uh, a human resting blood pressure, 120 over 80 millimeters of mercury. And bear in mind that between the, the capillary and the alveolar space is, is only about a half a micron, a tiny, very thin, thin membrane. So pressures rise on the inside of the capillaries and on the outside of the capillaries, because the horse has to suck in maybe 15 or 20 liters, um, three or four gallons per breath, um, 120 times a minute, it must generate massive negative pressures. So on the inside of that capillary, there's a huge pressure trying to blow it up this way. And on the outside, there's a negative pressure trying to suck it open and blow it up. And so though the, there are many, many, and, and uh, Dr. Bailey will talk about that. I don't doubt a little AC is much more qualified than me about some of the many, many facets and, and theories behind exercise-induced pulmonary hemorrhage and contributing factors. But the, the major ones, I believe, are that internal pressure, and the out, uh, which is positive, and the outside pressure. It used to be thought that the, um, the airways were the source of bleeding, but some beautiful studies by Jim Jones and others, at uh, Dr. Jim Jones at Davis, um, with colored microspheres have shown that it's certainly the uh, blood gas barrier rupturing itself and we now have wonderful uh, electron microscopy of red blood cells in, um, in the uh, alveolar space itself. But if we look at epistaxis, which is blood coming down, visible blood from the nostrils, you know, in terms of race starts, maybe only one to 3% of horses will show that visible epistaxis, but that doesn't mean they aren't bleeding. And um, so the, um, uh, the racetrack vet, can, uh, can scope a horse and that is diagnostic for EIPH and look for the presence of blood in the trachea and grade it from zero to four scale uh, or better um, but used more scientifically rather than at the racetrack uh, is bronchoalveolar lavage where you can flush fluid down uh, suck that fluid back out and actually count the red cells or as uh, Dr. Bailey will talk about look at the color he has a very beautiful assay where you can just actually assess EIPH severity based on the color of the fluid coming out. Oh my goodness. So interesting. Thank you so much for that rundown. And, you know, I remember in reading your paper, you outlined some really interesting stats and you said these, these racehorses, for instance, are racing upwards of 45 miles per hour with their heart beating four times per second. They have 105 gallons of oxygenated blood flowing from their lungs to their muscles each minute. 
And their blood gas barrier, as you point out, was one fifty thousandth of an inch thick. I mean, that's just, it's mind blowing to think of what's going on. And Dr. Bailey, I want to, I want to move over to you real quick to elaborate. And I'd love you to kind of expound on this and share with us a bit more about what's happening with this condition and why the horse's physiology sets them up to be susceptible for EIPH. I remember you sort of explaining the conundrums of this condition to me and posing the question, is it a condition or is this a consequence of a physiologic event that allows horses to run as fast as they do as athletes? And you summed it up perfectly and said, the faster the horse, the higher the risk. Show me a racehorse that doesn't bleed and I'll show you a slow horse. <laughs> uh, pretty much uh, sums it up, Jesse. So, you know, I could leave it at that, but <laughs> it's, it is a complicated, it's a, I think it's a, it is a complex situation. Um, if we ask ourselves, what is it about a thoroughbred racehorse, but mm. not just thoroughbreds, uh, any horses that are engaged, as you said, in, in timed events, especially events that are relatively short in duration, anywhere from about 18 seconds, such as you get with a top-class barrel racer or a champion quarter horse, uh, running quarter horse, to, to events that you know can certainly last five or ten minutes, but still uh, require a supreme effort. They are all capable, or and or I think in the majority of cases, especially in those shorter events that we equate with racing, um, I think they bleed to some extent, and virtually all you know under all conditions. So. I've taken to saying that it's uh, EIPH is an occupational hazard of high speed in, or high intensity exercise in horses. Now, David did a top job of explaining the um, sort of the basic or the fundamental pr- physiologic principles behind why bleeding, if you like, is almost I think is inevitable given the anatomic and the physiologic adaptations uh, that horses have, have generated or accumulated in order to, to run fast or faster and have been bred to do for millennia. Uh, the additional thing, which I think is a big factor, and we've done some work that would support this, is in addition to the large heart uh, and the relatively small lungs in relationship to the pumping capacity of that heart. The horse, um, the, <clears throat> many of these horses, particularly thoroughbred race horses, but other competitive breeds to a lesser extent have over the years, they have, they have developed the ability to store red blood cells in their spleens. Uh, and when they get excited, uh, there's release of adrenaline, um, there's stress, that spleen tends to contract and express red blood cells into the circulation. Um, they're, not norm- norm- they're not normally circulating when the horse is at rest, but you know, expose it to the sort of the flight or fight uh, experience, so to speak, which many of the viewers or listeners will have heard of that spleen contracts. And in essence, from a physiologic or an athletic perspective, you could say that they sort of auto blood dope themselves. 
many of the people may have sort of be somewhat aware of blood doping and the controversies uh, surrounding that in human athletes. Horses kind of do it themselves. But the bottom line in that regard is, as David said, you've got a heart, which is a, a certain size, generally big and well-developed. You've got lungs, which uh, have many, many capillaries, uh, some of which can open up when exposed to an additional flow of blood. But at the end of the day, when that spleen fully contracts, it probably increases the circulating blood, blood volume by 30 to 40%. And if you imagine something which is distensible to a point, like a balloon, most many people have been exposed to water balloons. If you think of the lungs, I'll say a bit like a balloon. It's not a perfect analogy, I know. But you start putting fluid into the, that lung, it'll expand. Closed capillaries will expand to accommodate that volume. But as you continue to put in more and more blood, it essentially, eventually it reaches the point beyond which you cannot expand any further. And the upshot of that is going to be that, just like with the blood with a balloon, the pressure, pressure will start to build because that's the only thing you that's what must happen when you put more fluid and more fluid into a, a, um, a volume which is essentially maximized. So in addition to the heart issue, it's probable that there's a lot of evidence or there's good evidence that the heart, big as it is, probably cannot accommodate all this blood. And so an inevitability as an, sorry, inevitable consequence, the fluid on the left side of the heart probably starts to back up into the lungs because the blood flows from the right heart to the lungs, to the left heart, to the body. If, as David said, that heart is beating four times a second, I mean, you know, you can't just try to imagine that. And uh, it's not able to squeeze the entire volume of its chambers out to the body, over time or fairly quickly, you start to get this backlog or this back pressure of blood back into the capillaries of the lungs. And that will certainly contribute, is probably the primary contributor to why the pressure in those capillaries gets so high. <clears throat> As he said, I mean, I could suck on my arm and a lot of, of us probably did that when we're children and create a bruise, right? <clears throat> That's the impact of negative pressure in the lungs. And when you've got an incredibly high pressure, I think there's evidence that bleeding is unavoidable if there's a big enough blood volume. I'll just finish up because I don't want to talk too much. We did, we did a study, which we're in the process of writing up now, where we compared the severity of EIPH you know, in normal horses to the same horses after we removed a large volume of blood. <clears throat> we did the same exercise, we did the same tests, we looked at their, the pressure in their hearts, we looked at the number of red blood cells from BAL or bronchoalveolar lavage, as David has mentioned, and on endoscopy, and we found it went down. We put the blood back in, 
and they bled as bad or worse than they did the first time round. So clearly there is a volume related phenomenon behind this. Um, we can talk a little bit. So that's the physiologic aspect. And I think fundamentally, if you ask, why does a horse bleed the first time it bleeds? It's not a disease problem. Those lungs in 99% of cases are working fine. There is no disease. There's evidence that horses start to bleed when they first get put into training as early two-year-olds. They don't have lung disease. It is, however, recognized that repeated bouts of BIPH can in themselves induce inflammatory changes, which, which in the extreme cases might ultimately lead to permanent changes in the architecture of the lungs, particularly around the venous or the veins that would, you know, would uh, constitute a pathologic condition. So pathology does come to play, but BIPH, I'm convinced, is not a, prim a primary pathologic problem, i.e. it's not primarily a disease. So interesting. Thank you for that very much, yeah, Dr. Bailey. Sorry. No, no, that's good. Bring it on. This is something, you know, we're here to learn from the two of you. It's like I said earlier, it's a, it's a condition with, um, or an occurrence with so many questions around it. So that's a good thing. Bring it on. And let's bring Dr. Poole back. And I want to open this question up to the both of you. And I know Dr. Poole touched on it to begin with, and that's really diagnostics. So I'm curious as to what the clinical signs are that both veterinarians and horse owners need to be aware of and maybe looking out for, particularly if they're a barrel racer or, you know, a quarter horse racing trainer or something along those lines, um, aside from the obvious blood in the nose, which doesn't always appear with this condition, is there, um, diminished performance that they need to be looking out for? And we know that you can have a bleeder that doesn't actually outwardly show blood. The, there are many things, and I'll let Waz come in, uh, in in a couple of minutes on here as a clinician. He's, he's got his own uh, uh, better developed insights than me. But uh, what I, I will say is that the horses can bleed quite a lot while they're running. And, you know, you don't notice outwardly that they are. But if you speak to the jockeys, for example, Hall of Famer Mike Smith, you know, would say he can actually feel when a horse starts rupturing his lungs. And, you know, who knows? Uh, you know, I'm not a jockey. I, I don't know, but he swears that he can actually feel it. But very often it, it is silent. We don't know this is happening as you we point out, you know, they only bleed a few times or a small percentage of time out of the nostrils. But those red cells, once they're in the lung, they're they're pathological. They're so they're broken down by um, alveolar macrophages and they form something called a hemosiderophage, which is a big, ghastly, nasty looking cell and it's surrounded by free radicals. It produces a lot of free radicals, that whole process. And, and this is what damages the lung after repeated bouts of, uh, of EIPH. And so it's very often called a progressive disease. And the more race starts a horse has had in general, you can see a front moving from the dorsocaudal lobe, which is down at the deep end, to almost adjacent to the diaphragm, and moving progressively more rostrally up towards the horse's head with repeated starts. And the deal about that is that that, that front of damage, if you will, is a scarring. And that scarring means that, that the beautiful compliance of a lung, you know, a, a, 
a lung, a human lung, is maybe 10 times as compliant as, as a balloon, a child's balloon. So if you need 30 centimeters of water for the balloon, you might only need three or five to get the same volume change in a lung. But once you get this stiffness and this collagen laid down in a non-specific fashion, um, as you do with progressive EIPH, then you start getting a region of the lung that's stiffer. And probably more importantly, where the, the healthy lung here meets the, the stiff lung here, you get this shearing forces of maybe may very high shearing forces that may contribute to more damage. So horses that have bled, have a long history of bleeding, um, tend to have more, more of this damage, we believe in their lungs, and will be more likely to bleed and bleed more heavily um, later on in their, their racing life and their racing career. Um, and so, so there is, uh, and there is some, some evidence, although, you know, it's only, uh, to my knowledge, one study um, actually looking at trying to calm down and there probably are more, but they, the one I'm familiar with uh, used uh, IgG, um, which is um, licensed for passive uh, transfer in, in foals. Um, and actually, over time, it may help protect by decreasing to protect the lung from this progressive damage by actually decreasing this uh, inflammation. Excellent. And, you know, Dr. Bailey, I want to I want to bring you into to talk more on the clinical side of this, too. So, you know, you're a veterinarian, you have a suspected case of EIPH in front of you, what's the workup look like on this horse? What diagnostics are you using? I know Dr. Poole touched on them a little bit earlier, but what diagnostics, and if you can go into a little bit of detail on the imaging as well, um, to really get a definitive diagnosis on that case. Sure, well, um, probably the presenting signs that might prompt uh, an evaluation, you know, determine is there evidence of did the horse bleed or not uh, is going to be related to one, how well it performs uh, in relationship, we'll say, to expectations, um, and two, signs that it might show in the immediate uh, cooling down period. Uh, and probably the two most commonly reported uh, clinical signs would be some coughing and or an increased amount of swallowing or the horse appearing to swallow pretty regularly. Uh, in, those, in those situations, the probably the uh, diagnostic technique of, of choice or the most commonly practiced is to endoscopically evaluate uh, the upper airway. We call it tracheoendoscopy or tracheobronchial endoscopy, which means you pass a, an endoscope, which is basically a flexible fiber optic device with a light on the end of it up the nose, down into the trachea. And if it's long enough, you might even get all the way to the bottom of the trachea, the trachea being the anatomic name for the major windpipe. You know, we all have one on the bottom side of a horse's neck or ours, uh, you might even get into the bronchi. Now, and that's, you know, the really, um, I guess the formative studies that helped us to appreciate just how widespread this was, they were initially conducted in the late seventies and early eighties uh, and uh, led to the, you know, the development or the coining of the of bleeding as exercise-induced pulmonary hemorrhage, as David said, they were conducted at the University of California in Davis. Um, however, 
easy as it is to do, <clears throat> and it's basically impossible to get a false, what we call a false positive with endoscopy. <clears throat> I mean, if you see blood, you see blood. Um, and people are probably familiar, especially in this COVID time with the terms false positive and false negatives. Um, however, the sensitivity of endoscopy is not great. So whereas um, if you see it, it's pretty specific, false positives would be almost non-existent. False negatives probably occur in up to a third of the cases where you pass an endoscope. So a far more sensitive test, which is close to 100%, is this technique called bronchoalveolar lavage, or BAL, which you've heard mentioned a couple of times already, in which you pass a tube into the lungs gently to the point where it won't go any further. You infuse fluid and then you suck that fluid out. So you essentially lavage or wash the area of lungs below the point of that tube. <clears throat> and the ability to, you know, to aspirate that fluid or suck that fluid back and then to count red blood cells in that fluid is the single most sensitive diagnostic test. Now, a lot of people don't do that test. Uh, they either don't feel comfortable with it or horse owners aren't, you know, they're not sure as to whether or not it's going to impact their animal negatively or not. Um, false positives with BAL are almost non-existent, as are false negatives. Uh, a reason for false negatives in endoscopy is probably worth a brief conversation. I, th I think that uh, the two main reasons are that either there isn't enough blood that's been lost, that it actually moves, is moved up the airways by the normal clearance mechanisms that we associate with movement of mucus and stimulate the cough receptors, uh, or the horse is being scoped uh, before the blood has appeared. In, certainly at, at racetracks, in the way the racetracks work, the management of the horses, the fact that there's a race every half an hour or so, and the trainer and the staff often have horses to get ready for multiple races. The most convenient time to scope the horse is probably as soon as it gets back to its stall, which is often about 20 to maybe 30 minutes after its race mm -hmm. is down. And that's when in the 30 to 45 minute time window post exercises when most horses probably get scoped. There's a little bit more variability possible at barrel races and barrel racing events and you know other high speed timed events. Um, in some cases that might be before the blood appears. Um, I think that if the horse is swallowing or the horse has not performed well, it would be advisable if it fits in with the management of the animal for the veterinarian or the owner to ask the, the veterinarian to come back and maybe scope the horse an hour or 75 minutes after the exercise is completed, just to double check that there's nothing visible and or to do a BAL. Um, a big factor in all this is, and it comes back to what I think David was alluding to is, okay, accept that the, accept that the horse may have bled or in fact did bleed. That does not necessarily mean, however, that if the horse did not meet expectations performance-wise, 
it should not be automatically assumed that the reason it didn't perform as expected was because of EIPH, because as I said before, I think in many respects, a little bit of EIPH is an occupational hazard for these animals. Um, probably six to 8% of horses uh, perform poorly on you know, a single occasion or on any one occasion because of EIPH. You know, six to eight percent is you know one in twelve to one in sixteen. Um, I think that's the best guesstimate. I don't know if you'd agree, David, based on studies of populations. Um, the other thing about EIPH is that evidence of you know it's not necessary in terms of its severity or the amount of blood. While it does certainly increase over time as the number of race starts in a, over a career and the horse gets old increases, that's, that's for sure. But the severity of VIPH, I say, last weekend is not necessarily predictive of how severely the horse might bleed in two weeks' time. Um, so a lot of the studies and the information we have have been based on sizable populations. But when you look at individual horses as just that individual horses, it's not as cut and dried. So there is certainly a lot of management considerations. And I think there's a lot of factors that go into the severity of the EIPH on a, <clears throat> on a given bout of exercise that we still don't have our arms around completely. I don't know if you'd agree with that, David, or would like to allow. No, no, that's that's uh, that's good. And uh, the one thing I would add, though, uh, Waz and uh, and Jesse, is that the if if you're trying to to perform a scientific study, then you try and you know knock off as many confounding factors as you can. And and there are, there's much about the etiology that we still don't know about EIPH. You know, it's it's a it, it is a very complex thing. It doesn't mean it can't be understood. But it does mean that we necessarily, as well said, can't predict, you know, what's going to happen in the next race to a given horse. If it is a heavy, has been a heavy bleeder in the past, there is a more of a chance it will be a heavy bleeder in this this race. But sometimes maybe not so much. But but given that, if if you are using the tracheobronchoscopy, as uh, as was outlined very nicely. Um, the, the management of the horse is incredibly important. And one of the things about looking at blood in the trachea is gravity. So if that horse has been allowed to put its head down to, you know, to nuzzle or to nibble or to drink or anything like that, that actually helps the blood be cleared or, or leak from the alveoli down into the trachea. And you can, you know, diagnose maybe a heavier bleed in one horse that's been allowed to do that versus another with the same degree uh, of actual EIPH in his lungs that has kept its head up. So there's there's a lot of subtle things and the science has to be done, you know, very, very, uh, very carefully. And, you know, one thing with the um, uh, tracheobronchoscopy rating is very, very difficult to actually blind those studies while you're doing them. But, but what's been done very nicely uh, in the studies and certainly, you know, uh, uh, from Waz's lab is that you can um, code the uh, the um, film from that and actually have it double blinded, you know, in another fashion downstream, and which is also what we try and do with bronchoalveolar lavage. The uh, the technicians that read the plates and read the slides 
um, have no idea, you know, what the condition is that the uh, the horse has just gone through to try and, you know, maintain, you know, a rigorous scientific criteria. So interesting. So are those management techniques, you know, they're, they come into play absolutely for the diagnostics, but is it something that riders and veterinarians need to keep in mind in terms of these performance horses? Is it something that can impact their performance? You know, for instance, a barrel racer needing to keep its horses or their horses head up, you know, prior to a run, or is it something that isn't necessarily going to make an impact on performance? No, no. Well, what I'm, what this is, is, is if you're going to actually measure yeah. um, the bleeding after the race. Sure. So, so you should not be, be racing a horse that's bled or um, may have bled heavily recently. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Jeff Blay, who's um, a, a California uh, a vet, race, race day vet, um, you know, he, uh, with the, the high value horses, um, they will x-ray them afterwards and they can actually see signs of fluid and blood in the, uh, in the dorsocaudal lobe and other regions of the lung. And, uh, he humbled us actually at an, uh, you were there was well, in, in awesome. Chicago a few years ago. I made the wrong decision. You know, I'm, I'm very humbled by, you know, a, a, a science oriented vet, not that you aren't all to some degree science oriented, but, you know, he said, look, here's a horse. You know, it's I know eight ten million dollar horse. He said, "Here are the X rays. Do you do you let it race next week?" And I would have done it. And and he went through the rationale why I was wrong, and uh, he would not have uh, let it race um, precisely for that reason. So, you know, may, maybe a horse with hemosiderophages can be leaking those into the large airways. You know, but that horse should not be should not be racing until um, that uh, pathology has cleared and the X rays clear. Oh, Dr. Dr. Blaya, he's a good one, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's an excellent point. You know, David Mates, and I just want to sort of emphasize them. I, I alluded to the management, you know, situation post-race, certainly at standard bread and thoroughbred racetracks and probably quarter horse racetracks too. And as David really made that point, gravity can help with the diagnosis. A lot of these horses, they get scoped before and the lead shank has not been off them from the time they left the unsettling enclosure to back into the stall. And the groom is there waiting for the horse to be scoped and he wants it done now, then he'll take the shank off and he's got to go and get the next one that he's in charge of ready for its race. So if you can take a bit more time you may in fact increase the likelihood that you will get a positive finding based on uh, endoscopy. Um, the other important thing, and there are a number, there are a lot of things we don't fully grasp. For instance, again, barrel racers, standard, they train, and sometimes they train at high speed. You know, in thoroughbreds, they call them breezing. The frequency and the severity of EIPH in breezing is not really something that's been looked at very much. The emphasis is always on the actual competition or tends to be. There have been a few studies that looked at horses post-breezing and the prevalence of EIPH based on endoscopy is very similar to what it is post-racing. So that brings into play what do you do and what can, you, uh, what can you do to maybe limit or deal with possible EIPH associated with you know, severe bouts of training? You look at barrel races, 
they get trained a lot. You know, barrel racing, two hundredths of one hundredth of a second at the top level can, it's worth a lot of money. Um, how much they bleed during training, I don't think anybody really knows. Uh, but again, it's a function of speed. You, you look at a horse that completed a barrel circuit in 23 seconds, it's going to be negative on endoscopy and BAL in all likelihood compared to the one that just ran in 18 and a half seconds. So again, it's a speed, function of speed and the, adapt, the, the physiologic adaptations that enables the horse to go that fast or perform that well. You bet. You bet. And it's kind of, it's, it's shocking when you learn how many of those top barrel racers that, you know, by name, those horses are in fact bleeders. Oh, sure. Yeah. But and some of my, uh, some of my students here at the vet school are quite accomplished barrel racers in their, their um, history. And uh, they tell me that it was pretty common that they'd have to go clean the blood off the first or second barrels. So when it happens, it can happen extraordinarily quickly uh, right. at the beginning of a race. Sure. Absolutely. And, you know, we've so past causation and diagnostics, we now have a confirmed case of EIPH. What's the next step in terms of a treatment protocol? So I'll open this back up to both of you again. And I know that this condition is tough to treat, but what, what modalities are being used with success and are there treatments being researched and tested that are now showing promise? I mean, we have nasal strips, we have Lasix or fluorosamide and you know can you kind of discuss what is at your fingertips as a veterinarian in terms of treating this condition and when it needs to be treated because it sounds like it's extremely prevalent and not all cases are actually impacting the performance of the horse i'll let david talk about the nasal strips because he's the author of some you know pivotal papers in that regard i'll just make some more general comments i think that the first thing about treatment or management is that you have to accept that the goal of whatever you do is to mitigate or reduce the severity of the IPH. I think that it's probably just for the reasons we've discussed, uh, I don't think it's feasible to say, I'm going to prevent it. Um, you could certainly reduce its severity as judged or as evaluated or discerned from endoscopy. Uh, the fundamental ways in which people would do that uh, to provide treatments like Lasix, you know, the generic name of which is furosemide, which has been shown to uh, reduce the pressure in those capillaries that we talked about from which the blood uh, you know, emanates or from where the bleeding occurs. So if you can lower the pressure in those capillaries, I, you can, in fact, in many cases, you will reduce the amount of EIPH. The other thing comes back to the, we'll say the negative pressure or the so-called sucking effect of breathing or inhaling, because when you blow out, it's positive when you inhale to get air in. That's the negative, that's the sucking. Now, there's a lot of evidence if you have upper airway problems, you have some uh, lower airway problems that might be associated with uh, presence of a lot of, you know, increased amounts of mucus 
or some other effects that lead to some scarring of the airways, either from prior infectious diseases, other uh, environmental diseases, and or probably previous bouts of EIPH. But if the animal has to breathe harder or take create more negative pressure to get air into the lungs, that more negative pressure probably means more bleeding, although that has not been definitively diagnosed. So again, if you can do something to ensure that the airways are as clear as possible, uh, you know, by you know, doing whatever it takes to minimize inflammatory changes in those airways, you may be helping to mitigate or reduce the severity of EIPH. That's a, you know, mild to moderate asthma, as it's now called, is got to be the subject of a totally different webinar. Uh, <laughs> that was my next question. Thanks for, thanks for bringing it up. Um, but furosemide is the only scientifically demonstrated or proven pharmacologic agent that's been shown to reduce the severity of EIPH. Just how it does that is not completely clear. It would appear that it is not just because it's a diuretic agent, but it probably has other effects. The diuretic effect certainly it has some, may have some impact on the total circulating volume. And I've mentioned before the importance of that, but it probably has direct effects on maybe the compliance or the ability of some of the, certainly the, the vessels in the lungs to relax even more than they normally do and therefore accommodate even greater volume expansion. But, you know, that's theoretical. That work yes. remains to be done. I'll let David talk about nasal strips. Let, if, well, well, if, and, and let me just uh, say, I mean, uh, Waz is one of the, the world's foremost experts on horses, EIPH and uh, furosemide or Lasix. So I know he's got ongoing studies that will, you know, maybe approach in, in a little while. So, you know, furosemide's working, it's a uh, horse is dumping um, a lot of fluid. Uh, his recent studies have, have shown uh, 20 to 25 kilos, um, you know, 40 or 50 pounds. So you think, you think of an animal that can be handicapped by three or four pounds and change the outcome of a race, right? If you're a trainer and you're an owner and you're a jockey, you want your horse on furosemide, whether it bleeds or not, you want it on furosemide because it's going to be lighter on race day. It's going to perform better. And you don't want to hear about pretty much anything else. Okay. But now as of um, January uh, the 1st, uh, 2020, you know, the coalition banned furosemide race day medication with furosemide on the day of the race uh, in two-year-olds. And um, that ban came for all horses in stakes races. I think in 83% I read in the, uh, the trainer uh, magazine, um, for uh, furosemide bans. So race day medication, um, not an option now. Uh, far less work has been done on the equine nasal strips. These things look like, like this. And uh, just humor me a second. Waz gave a great demonstration of negative pressure sucking on his arm. So just both of you keep your mouths closed for a second and just inhale as rapidly as you can just through your nose. Okay, hopefully our audience is doing this too. So you feel your nostrils getting sucked in. A horse is an obligate nasal breather. It doesn't breathe through its mouth when it runs. So all 70, 80, 90 liters per nostril per second comes in through uh, each nostril. And when that sucking in occurs, which is a region of um, 
skin, not muscle or bone, supported in their airways, just rostral to nasal incisive notch, that narrows. And, and this nasal strip, for all the reasons it doesn't work very well in humans, obviously a smaller version of this, but um, it does work in, uh, uh, in horses. And what we showed uh, a case study with Dr. Howard Erickson and, uh, and Tammy Epp and others is that we could decrease um, EIPH, again, not prevent it, but decrease it at about 50% with, with those nasal strips. Uh, and what was particularly interesting is there were studies by Susan Holcomb and Ed Robinson at Michigan, and they showed that it, it actually um, reduced the resistance to um, uh, breathing, to inhalation. And as most 70%-ish of the resistance to breathing in a horse is in the upper airways, you know, this, this is a, a really big deal. Uh, we also know uh, from uh, studies done 20, 25 years ago that horses with laryngeal hemiplegia, which causes a, a partial narrowing of their um, large airways, um, they, they actually bleed a lot more. When that's corrected, uh, one study showed they, they actually do bleed less. So up front, you know, we really should be looking, I think, at, at maybe creative strategies, as I think Waz will talk about, you know, maybe furosemide the day before and, and keeping the horse um, not on full water to replenish itself. You know, and, and folks talk about the long-term effects of uh, furosemide and, and how they may be damaging, but I, I will give just a very, what I think is quite humorous. I'm, uh, Waz is from down under, but I'm from the UK originally. And uh, oh, the British Queen apparently gets furosemided, Lasix, um, before official events and has done for years. You know, she's what, 94, 95 years old? Because going back traditionally through the time of Henry VIII and whatever in Britain, women were not allowed to leave the banquet table. And so it's a big deal. So they don't want to getting up and going pee in an official engagement. So, you know, I don't know if that's contributed to maybe, you know, her looking her age, who knows, but... Um, I don't know, so, Dr. Poole, if I learned anything today, I think that might have been the most important thing. <laughs> but, but anyway, but she's still going, maybe not strong, but still going, which is really remarkable in many ways. And I'm glad she is, maybe. Um, so furosemide helps, can decrease the bleeding by 50, maybe some studies 70, 75%. Was will come in on that in a minute. The nasal strip, somewhere around 50, 60% in the few studies that have been done. So, but, so there are those options today, even if it's day before furosemide, but a lot of attention is being given lately to particulate matter in, in the barns and the stables, particularly small particulates, the ones that you don't really see in the sunshine, because they can go really deep down into the lungs. And, you know, we've, I think for, for many, many years, it's just stables are dirty and we can't get around it, but they don't have to be, you know, you have millions of dollars of horses in there and uh, the, the higher the standard of, of dust control and uh, particulate matter can be a huge deal. Uh, Waz spoke about you know, uh, upper airway disease, potentially small airway disease as well. And uh, these things I think can be controlled um, to a greater degree than, than is generally happening at the moment. Yeah. Um, can I jump back in? Please. Please. Please have at it. Yes, absolutely. That's where that, that equine asthma comes in. I think one of, so David alluded to um, the rules that are now in North America in, at the majority of tracks that prohibit the uh, race day administration of furosemide to two-year-olds and to stakes horses. Um, and, you know, that's really in keeping with 
most of the rest of the world where race day medication or administration of furosemide is prohibited in any horse, regardless of age or the class of race. Um, we've done some work which indicated that if we gave furosemide 24 hours beforehand and then controlled the access to of the horses to water, uh, that it was also uh, efficacious or effective at reducing the severity of the EIPH. Now, the drawbacks to that study were, there was a small number of horses uh, and the, small, the smaller the number, you know, we, we reported what we found, would it hold up in a much larger population? I don't know. I would like to think so, but that hasn't been done. Another important thing about furosemide that uh, some studies that we've worked on, and again, are in the throes of publication. A lot of people think that furosemide, you know, it's, it's wrong to use it because it's forcing, it's dehydrating the horse and that can't be good for the animal. Uh, certainly uh, in the first two hours after its administration, the horse's blood volume and body water, we'll say circulating bloody uh, body water diminishes rapidly because anybody who's seen furosemide at work or use it themselves knows that it induces urination pretty quickly. But in our hands, uh, some of the work we've done when we've looked at the circulating blood volume four hours after administration, the circulating blood volume is pretty much back to what it was before the furosemide was administered. And I think that the secret to that is the horse has a very large, large colon. And studies of, on uh, specimens at abattoirs and you know, other you know, uh, similar facilities where they've looked at it would indicate that probably the average horse might have as much as 30 litres of water in that colon. You start to lose or urinate large volumes, volumes of urine, the body, the body sort of will say homeostatic or balancing mechanisms kick in and the reabsorption of the water from that colon starts very quickly. And over a four hour period, it looks to me and my colleagues as if the, uh, the reabsorption of that water is sufficient that it's back in the circulation. So when that horse comes to race, it is not actually um, dehydrated per se. And I just throw that in because that's one of being one of the biggest concerns uh, from welfare aspects about you know, the administration of lastics. As David says, the net effect is the horse loses a lot of weight. Uh, but most of that weight has probably been um, is reflected in loss of water or movement of water from the colon into the circulation. If you look at the amount of water in manure, the manure the horse passes after receiving Lasix four, five, six hours later, in fact, the water in that manure is significantly reduced. Again, furthering or supporting the notion that's because it's moved back into the circulation. Um, with respect to airways, presence of mucus and the like, 
a lot of horses, probably because the stable environment in which they are kept in most American racetracks, they frequently have a lot of mucus in those airways. You see them, you see it when you scope the horse looking for evidence of blood. Um, there are a variety of clinical uh, management protocols, many of which are based on improving the air quality, either through bedding, improved ventilation, other issues related to the stables that have been shown to reduce that amount of mucus. And if you can do that, there's good evidence. It's, it's, um, it's generally accepted that you are going to probably reduce the amount of EIPH simply because it makes the horse easier for the horses to breathe when they are you know, exerting themselves at these limits that we've talked about. Can you help me uh, think through something if, if our um, gracious host will allow me, uh, Jesse? Uh, Was so now the studies um, in uh, uh, with us, uh, with uh, the Michigan group, with you folks, uh, generally ephrosomite lowers pulmonary artery pressure. This was, we thought, not the only, but, but the a primary mechanism. And when you look at the reduction in the IPH, it's proportional to the lowering of pulmonary artery pressure. And that is coming from the reduced cardiac output, not oxygen transport. Oxygen transport's good, but the, the acute furosemide given two to four hours before a race or before a treadmill experiment, you know, dehydrates the horse, lowers blood volume, lowers pulmonary artery pressure, lowers the IPH. But now, if you now give um, the horse 24 hours after you've treated furosemide, you control water, you now say the blood volume, as I believe you just did, is, is back up to approximately what it was before. So if it isn't blood volume, it isn't cardiac output under these circumstances, um, I hear what you say about smooth muscle effects and potentially um, you know, pulmonary arteriolar um, uh, dilation, better dilation. Um, and one of the reasons that I don't like that explanation so much is the following. We thought, hey, lower pulmonary artery pressure as much as we can. So why don't we have the horse breathe nitric oxide? So we gave horses nitric oxide to breathe. And we thought, okay, now we'll lower pulmonary artery pressure. We did. And they bled more. The IPH is more. So it seems to a certain degree there's some um, pulmonary artery to arterial vasoconstriction that yes, it raises PA pressure higher than it would otherwise be, but it may be protective for certain regions of the lungs. So my question for you is other than, you know, what do you think about that? Uh, is, is there something special about furosemide if it's having the effect on arterial or smooth muscle? Um, how is it somehow managing to, to not, you know, expose very friable or brittle regions of the lung to more EIPH? Okay. How long have we got? <laughs> Let's get coming. No, 30 seconds. You'll get 30 seconds. Wow. That's, no, that's, that's an excellent question. We think, well, it comes back to, so why does pulmonary arterial pressure increase associated with exercise? And I don't know that that's been as uh, well investigated as it could be. Certainly, I would I think that the increase in blood volume that we've discussed in and of itself 
is going to have, be responsible for some increase in pulmonary blood pressure. But if you think about it, coming back to, I mentioned the left heart, in order for the blood to flow from the right through the pulmonary artery to the left heart, there has to be higher pressure in the pulmonary arterial system than there is in the left heart. And if the pressure in the left side goes up, then in order to keep the blood flowing, the pressure still has to go up over here because fluid flow flies from, flows from high to low. Now, so that's just in principle. And I am, I'm aware of the papers with nitric oxide and the, and you're talking about pulmonary arteriolar pressures and the like, David, and that's, I think, a valid point. And uh, I probably don't know enough about it, but there's, um, and I've talked to you about this. If we're getting to cutting edge, there's evidence in other species that furosemide actually causes considerable relaxation of the venules, the microvasculature on the left side or between the pulmonary capillaries here and the left heart, you've got all these venules and veins, the venous side that take the water from these capillary, the water, the blood from these capillaries to the left heart. If in the face of increased left heart pressure, you can somehow dilate or cause even more relaxation in these venous blood vessels than is normal by administering furosemide, then the back pressure that I was talking about is likely to be diminished. And it's certainly there's evidence that when we talk about this, this thing, there's this measurement called pulmonary arterial wedge pressure, which is an indicator of the pressure on the left side of the vasculature of the left heart. It goes down when you give furosemide which suggests that the pulmonary venous pressure, which is virtually impossible to measure, and the left atrial or the left heart pressures, which are hard but are more measurable, are also going down. We've done some direct measurements on the left heart pressures with furosemide that show that they go down even when the blood volume is normal. How long after the administration of furosemide these, this increased relaxation of pulmonary veins in horses might last is unknown. In dogs with heart failure and some other models, it lasts a number of hours. Um, but that doesn't mean it's the case in horses. And we haven't even shown yet that, in fact, if that uh, horse pulmonary small veins do relax with furosemide. Uh, I think there's some evidence that it might, but that still remains to be, to be seen. But if that was the case, that I think would help explain just why furosemide does have the effect that it has outside of its diuretic effect. Yeah. No, and, and, and I think that's absolutely fascinating. Um, but they, we're coming back to that's the acute effect and, you know, whether we're going to see it you know, 24 hours later or whatever, if you give it for, you know, pre-race day. And, and we do know that um, uh, bronchial smooth muscle is dilated by uh, furosemide, but that effect is gone in a couple hours from my reading, you know, um, there. 
But I, I think that's really neat because I know there was a, a lot of interest in the, the heart responding. And maybe it was the, because the heart isn't relaxing fast enough, then that's also driving up left atrial pressure, backing up through the lungs, more bleeding. Um, but, you know, the, uh, to my knowledge, the uh, uh, in vitro muscle studies on the heart and furosemide haven't given anything uh, suggestive that, that that is the mechanism. So I, I do like the, uh, the pulmonary venules as potentially a, a site for that. And, and it's particularly exciting if, if they could even do that in, in pulmonary venules that have had cuffing, they've got thickened walls, you know, in, in chronic, uh, for chronic bleeders, you know, that would be, be tremendously exciting if that, that did occur. Well, I'll, I'll give David a plug. He's connected me with some colleagues of his who have the capacity to do this study. So we are just waiting for approval from that institution's Animal Use and Care Committee uh, in order to proceed. So we'll uh, see you. We'll see you back here in 18 months and uh, <laughs> to have an updated discussion on this as it sounds like it's rapidly changing. Uh, I was going to throw in one other thing because it pertains to the water issue. Uh, furosemide first appeared in American racetracks and in, we'll say, the mid to late 60s, and its use really took off in the 70s. But before there was furosemide, uh, a lot of old-time uh, racetrack grooms and trainers would tell you that if they had a horse that bled, and that really meant had epistaxis because that was the only way they knew, they used to try to control it by, as they called it, drawing them down, which either often meant just withholding water in toto for you know on race day or for a you know sometimes a slightly longer period than just from the morning of the race and a lot of them thought that that was helpful we tried to do that in the same study i mentioned before and we didn't find that there was any significant reduction in the severity of the iph again it could have been because we just didn't have enough horses or we didn't have the right horses i don't know but there was certainly historical belief that that might also help. And again, I would liken it to maybe initially inducing a little bit of dehydration, but compensating for it through the, in, through the absorption of the water that you know, in the reservoir that's the large intestinal or the colon. And for those, those uh, listeners who are interested in human athletic performance, um, this has been tried in humans. It, it does not work. Losing that little bit of weight does, does, is generally, you know, maybe good if you do mountain cycling or something. But the, the obverse of that is that it has a majorly um, uh, poor effect on, on human performance. So interesting. Well, there's so many translational aspects to veterinary medicine that do go straight over to our, our human counterparts. This uh, looks like it may not be one of them in that area. But you know, I, I want to ask you both, you, you know, we live, this is, you know, platinum performance. We live in the world of advanced nutrition, obviously. And though there may be some advanced nutrients that can help support EIPH patients, you know, there aren't any that are proven therapy. And I'm talking, you know, arginine, a natural vasodilator, nitric oxide enhancer, or terastilbene, tissue oxygenation, you know, things like that. But you know, bottom line, we always advocate for keeping these horses, these athletes in prime physical condition um, and taking this whole horse approach, you know, to, to conditions such as this, the right nutrition, proper conditioning, proper management, proper recovery. 
how does that play a role in the ability of these horses to continue to perform at a top level despite this condition? Do you want to take that whilst I've been talking a bit more lately? I was going to say, you've done, you've been associated with the various feeding studies, yeah. uh, Dave, you know, or Tammy, you know, I think you were part of the ones that. Uh, yeah. Oh, tell me up. Uh, well, I, I can comment on those and, and I certainly will. You know, we, I thought the, the question was a little broader than that. But, you know, in terms of um, diets rich in L-arginine, you know, it's, you know, they, they, they may help a little bit. We've shown yeah. that in, in, in other species, um, specifically humans, that uh, L-arginine can uh, translate to greater nitric oxide bioavailability, um, which can, can be, be good for uh, muscle performance in certain ways, in, in other ways, it can be bad because nitric oxide also um, um, blocks uh, and interferes with cytochrome oxidase and mitochondrial function. So um, there can be a downside to, to this as well. And we've talked briefly, I did about the downside of increased nitric oxide in the lungs where you might actually increase EIPH. Um, sure. I'm certainly no, no nutrition uh, expert though. So I'd, uh, I'd yield the floor to, uh, to Waz for any comments on that. Yeah, um, I think there's a fundamental, there's a conceptual aspect of this that uh, I think it's important to grasp in trying to answer your question, Jesse. Uh, I don't know if there's anything in what you feed a horse that might help to reduce EIPH because I haven't seen data that supports that. But the absence of data doesn't, should not be a, equated with the absence of an effect. And what I mean by that is, in some respects, the way in which we conduct science is kind of a very macro or a fairly gross approach because we rely on statistics and if you think about a horse, especially a horse in a timed event, we've talked about racehorse, we've talked about barrel races, you know, half of 1% improvement or 1% improvement because of something they're being fed or the way in which management's been changed would have potentially a massive effect in that competition. But to statistically, there's that word, demonstrate that it is a significant effect, you would need to probably have every horse respond that way. Oh. And you would need to study hundreds of horses before it was deemed to be what we would call statistically significant. Uh, and that's just the basis of the established statistical tests. And that's why there's, that's why one, there are so relatively few uh, management techniques, drugs, other treatment methodologies, feeds that have been demonstrated to, you know, within this sort of macro or relatively insensitive statistical testing we do to be effective because it is very, very hard to do tests with hundreds of horses. You bet. You know, David and I have done a lot of them. We do well if we get 10 horses. Yeah. You know, especially if you have to own and feed all those horses in a university environment. 
You've got to be able to get in, out into the field and then know that everything else is being controlled for in order to really evaluate the effects of a given feed substance. I cannot tell you that there's any reason that I'm aware of to not feed those. Uh, you know, price notwithstanding, because I don't know how much they cost. But I just, it's important to understand, as I say, just because that hasn't been scientifically proven, I can't say that it doesn't mean, particularly for an individual horse, it might not make a difference. I mean, one second in a thoroughbred race over a mile is worth about six lengths. Now, if a horse suddenly improves or improves six lengths in a mile race, that's, I mean, that raises eyebrows. That is yeah. an amazing degree of improvement, but it might only, but it's really only 1%. And a lot of people would say that's within the realm of normal biological variation. So that's sort of the conceptual sort of um, angle. You know, it's important to people to kind of get their arms around in appreciating how difficult it really is to, uh, to demonstrate without a reasonable shadow of doubt that something does work. Yeah, I think that's so well put. And we don't know what we don't know yet in that area. And right. what we do know is, you know, thanks in large part to, to gentlemen like yourselves and the work that you've done. And I want to kind of round us out with a question that is, um, what would you what would you want veterinarians that are looking at these horses? What would you wish that they knew or that they were practicing uh, in treating these horses and making recommendations about management? You know, is there anything that's being generally missed out there by riders or veterinarians um, that could really help make a difference in these horses? Uh, I, I think without, without question, and I'm incredibly biased on this because I've worked on the nasal strips. I would say when, you know, I read articles in Horse Magazine and Trainer, and they say, well, no furosemide race, race day. There's nothing we can do now. You know, and of course, that's that's good for funding studies where, you know, you can look at furosemide day before. Mm -hmm. And that's very valuable and necessary. But, you know, put a nasal strip on. Put a nasal strip on. They won't run as fast as if they're, they're 40 pounds lighter. Um, but there is some evidence that they'll, you know, and it's a small effect. Some of what Waz was talking about comes into this. You know, there's, there's evidence that they, they're about 4% better in terms of winning race starts if, if they're wearing a nasal strip. And part of the mechanism for that is, is may not relate directly to helping protect their lungs, but by keeping the passageways open, um, we've shown in the laboratory that they actually, their respiratory muscles use less oxygen. And from work in humans by uh, Dr. Craig Harms, Dr. Jerry Dempsey, we know that if the respiratory muscles aren't using as much blood and oxygen, it's going to the locomotory muscles. So it's nowhere near as big an effect of losing weight from furosemide, but it is protecting their lungs. And it's something that can be done right now. And uh, I would say, do that, clean up your stables and, and read uh, Dr. Bailey's furosemide day before studies. Oh, yeah, you're very gracious, David, yeah. Um, if I was seriously involved in horse racing, which I'm not, it's sort of, it's an application, and the use of nasal strips was allowed, where I was racing, I would I'd put them on a horse for sure. Um, I've got to remember what the rest of your question was, Jesse. It was, you know, is there, what, what would you like veterinarians and horse owners to be more aware of or to be practicing? What are we missing? 
I, I think the other thing, and we've we've touched on this, is that I think it's important that owners understand and veterinarians accept that if a horse is seen to have experienced EIPH, um, in many cases, well, in the majority of cases, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's why it didn't perform or meet expectations. Sure. Um, it may have been, uh, would depend on the severity or the amount of bleeding. Um, I just sometimes am concerned that that the extent of the post-exercise evaluation is limited to endoscopy. And if EIPH is detected, it's presumed that that's why the horse did not do well. Uh, I think that lamenesses or soreness or changes in gait, especially in the course of racing, uh, can occur. Uh, we tend to think that what we hear and what we see, that they're the most sensitive detectors around. Well, I th especially in a horse's racing, you can't see what's going on. Uh, I think that what we can hear is limit, you know, is determined by how well we can hear, and there can be subtle changes in air in airflow that can be technologically detected, but we can't hear. Uh, the heart arrhythmias during exercise may be a problem. So I just, so I guess my take-home message is that don't forget to look at other things that might be responsible for poor performance, especially if you see a low-grade degree of EIPH on endoscopy. Either do a BAL to get a clear idea as to how much blood really is there and or be thorough in you know, performing additional you know, diagnostic evaluations. And I've, I've never trained uh, horses. I have trained humans and other species. And one thing I would say is, you know, we're in an age of, of concierge medicine. We're appreciating that, that you know, you, you give 10 people the same drug and it may work in three and the other seven, you know, it doesn't work in. And so as a scientist would say, it's not statistically significant. If you're one of those three people, you know, and it saved your life, a cancer med or a heart med, um, you know, the company's going to make billions on it and you're going to be happy. So, you know, I think there are some, as uh, Waz said very nicely, there are some limits to science, but I think we have to appreciate that, you know, uh, every, like every individual human is different. And we, we look sometimes for these broad brushstrokes we can apply to, you know, every animal or every human. And uh, it may take the, the genius of the trainer who's working with those animals to be able to spot subtle differences and things that may work for a given horse, but don't just give me a whole stable because, you know, you may be very, very uh, surprised. And it may be very expensive for you too. You bet. It's a new era of personalized medicine. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, go ahead, Dr. Bailey. I was just going to, because David just prompted an idea that I, I keep forgetting. Even with furosemide or Lasix, uh, while it works over a large population of animals, when you evaluate that population sort of as a single entity, if you look actually closely at the, the data in that study, up to, I think it was getting on for 30% of the horses uh, actually didn't bleed any less than, you know, with Lasix as compared to without it. But overall, you know, 
70% of them were improved. And that was enough to say, well, this stands the test of statistics. But um, so horses, not every horse appears to respond well to furosemide. Uh, and if even if they do today, next time you give it, it may not be quite the same outcome. So again, you know, I just may be closing with that to emphasize again, EIPH is, you know, it's a complicated condition uh, and we are limited based on, you know, what we can actually detect. We cannot, we don't know how much blood actually goes into the tissues around the airways. We're only really able to look at the blood that's in the airways. Uh, when a horse bleeds, you know, out of those capillaries, it bleeds into the airways, but some goes into the surrounding tissues, even if there's not a whole lot, you know, there's not a huge volume, but that does happen. If we could develop a way to quantitate the amount of blood actually associated with the IPH, we'd probably start to learn a lot more about, you know, what's important and what is a minor event or just sort of, as I say, an occupational hazard. Well, when I just have maybe a little closing note for me, when, when you know, I talk to audiences about this, uh, sometimes they, they envisage these capillaries that now they're ruptured for life. That's not true. You know, uh, work from uh, the John West group and Anne Elliott at UCSD, you know, has demonstrated at least in, in rabbit lungs that those breaks when they create them uh, through uh, experimental circumstances, they seal up within, within minutes to certainly less than an hour. So they, they are sealing themselves, but as uh, Dr. Bailey said, you know, there's fluid, there's red cells in, in the tissue intima, and that can cause uh, one, a lot of mischief, and two, you know, um, if you're not seeing that as blood coming out in your BAL, there may be a source of pathology that, that you, you have missed. And a final closing note before I go is here's a visual for folks watching. Like you talked about furosemide. Well, we used to have something we did with some of our students. We didn't give them furosemide, that'd be illegal. But <laughs> sometimes you get a querulous veterinary student in class, you know, the one that gabby, 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 you know, and they just they ask the silly questions and you, you can't shut them up effectively always without, you know, stopping questions from the class. So what we do would in be invite them down. Um, uh, the horse barn to when we're having study day, when we're giving furosemide maybe to a horse. And we'd furosemide the horse and give the student them to look after for a while and make sure they went to a part of the, uh, the barn with a concrete floor for a male horse. And there is no, <laughs> no doubt in my <laughs> mind that that is a life-changing experience because piss like a racehorse is probably a racehorse on furosemide and they will get, you know, 20 to 40 liters. And with a male horse, it hits the concrete and it comes up and it's in their nose, it's high pressure urine in their eyes. And one, they will not be querulous in class again. And two, they will never ever forget what furosemide does. Making memories in school. I like it. <laughs> uh, Dr. Bailey, Dr. Poole. Um, I mean, I got to have two worldwide authority figures and nice guys, I have to say, here with me today to talk about a condition that impacts such a large number of horses, yet it has so many questions surrounding it. And it sounds like, you know, from our discussion, there's a lot of discovery ahead of us. Um, so the work that each of you have done and continue to do on EIPH is what's moving us forward, you and your colleagues. It's amazing work. And I thank you so very much for being here to shed light 
on this for me and for all of us joining us. And I know I enjoyed my time getting to know the two of you a little bit better. And thanks to Dr. Poole, I got to know Her Majesty the Queen a little bit more intimately as well. And I hope that all of you that are joining us have gotten as much out of this as I have and that you're going to join us for our next discussion. So thank you sincerely from myself and from the team at Platinum Performance to Dr. Bailey and Dr. Poole. Take care, everyone, and thank you again for joining us. Thanks, Jesse. Dave, great to see you. And I will never be able to look at a picture of Queen Elizabeth II in the same way again. So thank Thanks. you. Great spending time again with you, uh, <laughs> uh, Dr. Bailey, and, and a real pleasure, uh, Jesse Bengoa. Thank you very much for the kind invitation. Take care, yeah. all. Thank you again. Okay. Thank you. Goodbye.